I know everyone is eager to know what gift Tim wanted <laughs> and what he's going to get. Uh, a lot of things that we could say about that right now, right? Just trust that wise parents have exercised God's direction and leading there. We trust Colleen more than Matt probably in that though. Yeah, right, right. Uh, That in part is because moms know things like that nobody else in the world knows, including dads sometimes, right? I mean, they have this God-given intuition that goes way beyond spidey senses. We sometimes talk about things like that. Uh, I've been amazed through the years to see how my wife Kristen, she just knows. She just perceives things. And uh, our oldest, we have four children, two boys, two girls, and uh, none of them live at home anymore. But our oldest, I think he was 10th grade, he came back from a date, walked through the door, he was excited. He, he is the kid that you never had to wonder what he was thinking because he was going to tell you. But he barely made it through the door on this particular night, and we knew he had been out with this girl that he really liked. And before he could even give a report on the evening, Kristen took one look at him, and she said, you kissed that girl, didn't you? And he was just like, yeah. And I, I mean, I'm looking at him, looking at her, looking back at him. Like, what? How would she know that? Well, moms just know. Like, they know stuff. And I think part of it is they are just given this ability by God uh, to see and perceive things in their children that nobody else does. Many moms are famous for recording the important moments of their children's lives. And some of you have gone to great lengths uh, to record those precious moments, uh, especially those early years until you get too busy and too overwhelmed. And, you know, and some of you are like third or fourth or maybe even fifth born child, and you're like, nobody remembers anything about my life. Yeah, your mom tried, but she just gave up about number three somewhere in there. Do you remember the scrapbooking craze uh, that swept the world a number of decades ago as Kristen is not here in this service, but she was in the first service and she started shaking me off when I said that uh, early. Like, Danny, that's such old news. But some of you are old enough to remember that, right? I mean, there were special books and special paper and special scissors and special stickers and special frames and all of that stuff. And some of you invested thousands of dollars in in creating these memorable scrapbooks of your child's life or other special people. And some of you probably still have buckets and boxes of specialty paper and stamps and crimping tools and the like. And you worked hard to capture the memories of those moments and to memorialize them in creative ways. And looking through those old photo albums is often a wonderful and sometimes hilarious experience. And whether you captured and cataloged the memories in photo albums or not, those represent genuine treasures of your heart. And that's why you go to great expense and effort, because you don't want to forget those moments. And some of them really are exceptional moments. Well, Luke 2 includes the record of what Mary treasured most from the infancy and boyhood of Jesus. There are two synonyms in the passage we're going to read this morning, beginning in Luke 2, 19. So go ahead and turn there and find Luke's gospel. If you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, you'll find this on page 857. Luke 2 includes the record of what Mary treasured most from the infancy and boyhood of Jesus. And the two synonyms that help us, or or the word, it's the same English word, but there are actually two little variations in in the Greek of the word treasure. The first one is in verse 19. Glance there real quickly. Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. And then the word pondering, I'll come back to that in just a moment. Now look down to verse 51. Again, Luke's gospel tells us that she treasured up these particular things. And we're going to work through this this morning. What is Mary treasuring according to Luke's gospel? Well, she's treasuring not just the moment, but the particular experience of seeing God bring the 
Christ child into the world miraculously of hearing the report first of the shepherds who came in with all that excitement and enthusiasm and said, you won't believe what we've seen and here's what the angel said and this is the Christ. And now we're actually going to go first eight days into the life of the Christ and then about 39 days into the life of Christ and then 12 years. Now we have no way of knowing for sure that in writing the gospel of as Luke did, that he actually interviewed personally Mary, but their lives overlap and there is reason to believe based on what Luke said in chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 that he was very careful to compile these eyewitness accounts and the first-hand reports of the life of Christ. It's reasonable to think that he may have met Mary at some point and perhaps had the privilege of saying, Mary, could you tell me about the infancy or what do you remember most about Jesus as a boy? We'll have to wait until we're in glory face-to-face with Jesus and we can meet Mary, talk with Luke, and say, hey, I heard a guy say one time in a sermon long ago that maybe you all talked, did you? And if they say, no, we never met, then you can come my direction and correct me on, on all that. But it's sweet to think that that might have happened. It's more important to recognize that this is the factual record of events that really took place. Now, let's read. Uh, you follow along as I read verses 19 through the end of the chapter. This is going to take us a couple of minutes, but it's worth just reading and pondering because that's what Mary did with these things. Pondering just means to reflect deeply on a subject, and I want you to be asking as we work through this text today, what does all of this really mean for me? What does this mean for us right now in the 21st century? We're 2,000 years beyond this. What does it mean? This is the word of the Lord. I want to begin reading In verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves. There's your two turtle doves. Or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, 
But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word, we come now with expectation and hope and pray that you would uh, give us help by your spirit to understand all that is revealed to us about Jesus. We are thankful for what you have recorded in your word, but Lord, take us to that place where we too treasure Christ, where we value him above all other things, all other experiences, even all other relationships. And we ask that by your dear Holy Spirit, who you poured out upon Simeon and worked through him, to give us the truth that we ponder today. Oh Lord, let that same spirit be poured out over us and in us that we may believe your truth, that we may obey it completely and that we may share it joyfully. So we come asking you to do a good and gracious work in our hearts through your word, by your spirit, for the sake of of your only begotten Son, our only Savior, Jesus. Amen. Now, as we ponder the very things that are recorded for us here today, I want to categorize them into two separate sections. The first would be pondering the memories of Christ's infancy, and the second would be pondering the treasured memories of Christ's boyhood because these are the things that Luke points us to. Now, by way of reminder, when verse 19 is actually continuing the thoughts out of the previous verses, when it tells us that Mary is treasuring all these things, remember the shepherds had just reported uh, that the angels had announced his birth and they had described him as the savior of all. It's good news of a great joy for all peoples. And in this series on the Gospel of Luke, we're going to find that Luke continues to press this point home that the good news is for all nations. It's not limited to Jewish people. It's not limited to super spiritual or religious people. It's for all people. So that's what she begins to ponder in her heart. Now, we come to verse 21, and you can see that eight days into the life of Christ, Mary and Joseph are following Jewish law. They are righteous people. Matthew establishes that in his gospel. It's already been established in the first chapter of Luke 1, and it it just resumes that particular theme. Now, what is the response of faith? Well, on day 8, they not only honor God's law by having him circumcised, but they name him Jesus. And Luke notes that that is according to what the angel had told them. This is the designated name. And remember what the name Jesus means. Yahweh saves. God saves his people. And so this son takes on this name according to God's word. Now look at verse 22. On day 39, this is according to Old Testament law, they were required to bring this baby up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as verse 22 says. And then verse 23 is a quotation from Old Testament law. And they were taught to offer a sacrifice according to what is said, and a little sidebar, the fact that they offered a pair of turtle doves is an indication that this is a very poor couple. 
But notice what happens at this point. We're introduced to another, uh, another witness. Now, Luke has been bringing these people out. Some of them were eyewitnesses that he probably talked to personally. Others had given eyewitness re- reports that were recorded or shared with those that Luke interacted with. And this next witness that we, uh, that, that we meet is named Simeon. Look at verse 22 with me. The to- or I'm sorry, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And isn't it interesting that the Bible doesn't tell us anything about this man's personal life? We don't know if he was married. We don't know if he had children and grandchildren. We suspect that he's pretty old at this point based on the promise that was given him that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. But even that, we don't really know. But the two critical things that God tells us about this man are, first of all, he's righteous. He's a man that's ordering his life according to God's word. That's what righteous means. Secondly, he's devout. That means he's committed. He's all in. He, by faith, has taken grasp of God's word and God's promises, and he's been ordering his life according to all of that. This is an exemplary man. But notice what the text says. He's looking for the consolation of Israel. That reminds you that his life is far from perfect. He, like you and me, is actually in need of a kind of consolation that never comes to us through earthly relationships, through our work and vocation, through education and training, through getting the Christmas gift you asked for, but your parents said, sorry, not this year. We need a greater consolation than all that, don't we? We need a kind of comfort that brings our souls into a place of rest, a place of peace. Now, Simeon, obviously, is a man who orders his life by the word of God, and all he would have had at that point was the Old Testament. New Testament wasn't written. So he's a man who not only knows God's word, but he's been given a special promise by God. Did you notice as we read through that that there are three references to the Holy Spirit in regard to Simeon? He's a man who is full of the Spirit, And verse 26 tells us something had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. And that particular thing is that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He's walking with God. And in one sense, while he's not an exception to the saints of old, he's a little bit of an exception to the typical religious pursuit in Jerusalem at this time. But the Spirit of God moves him. Uh, had not only revealed truth to him, but verse 27 says he came in the spirit into the temple. I wonder if he had any idea that this might be the day where he would see the consolation he had longed for. How could he know? I was thinking earlier of a a song that we sometimes love to sing. It's a prayer uh, of our hearts and the longing. Uh, And we haven't sung it for a while. Uh, We should again soon. Uh, Do you feel the world is broken? And the answer, we do. And there's a whole series of questions that express the great longing of our heart for this kind of consolation. And you know the difficulties that you and I experienced, the difficulties that Simeon was living through, those ordinary things. For him, it was Roman occupation. That's, that's, That's not a happy thought for a committed Jewish man, the economic pressures that rested on most ordinary citizens in Jerusalem at that time, the heavy tax burden, that's that's what that decree that went out from Caesar Augustus was all about. Remember, we looked at that last week. He, like so many others that we've been looking at in in these first two chapters of Luke, is just kind of making his way through life probably many times, many ways and days like you and me, saying, God, what gives? But God had given him a promise. You will see the Christ. Now his was very specific, before you die. Here he is looking for more than a moment of consolation. He's actually looking for a person. Did you know, and some of your English translations may reflect this, 
The consolation of Israel, we believe, is actually a title for Messiah. That's why I've capitalized it in the notes. It's not just an experience Simeon has been moved by the Holy Spirit to look for. It's a person. Now, we know who that is. We read it here this morning, and many of you know this story really well. Jesus is God's promised salvation to Simeon personally. That's what verse 26 told us. Now, look at verse 29, though. He's led by the Spirit. He takes this child up in his arms, verse 28 tells us, and then says, verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Like his faith becomes sight in that moment. He holds the Savior of the world in his hands. I'm so glad for moments like these in the scriptures where the, where the faith of ordinary saints like you and me actually becomes sight or touch in a moment. That's one of the hardest parts of this life of faith we've been called into is that you can't go touch the Lord today. You can't even hear his voice audibly. But he still calls you to believe, doesn't he? And you know, part of the reason we don't lose heart in believing is that there are multiple stories like this where people who believed apparently for a long time and long seasons suddenly realize the truth and reality of what they've been hoping for. Now, did you notice this? When he, when he takes this child up in his arms, he, he basically says, I'm ready to go. I'm at peace. But here's the irony. Nothing about his immediate circumstances changed. If he's an old man, he's probably got some health issues. If nothing else, he's slowing down. He just doesn't have the strength and stamina that he once used to. The Romans didn't suddenly leave Israel at that point and hand the keys to the nation back over to the Jewish leaders. The tax burdens weren't lifted off of him at that moment, but he holds the Christ child in his hands and says, my life is whole. My world is complete. The promise has come. And I think to myself, oh, I need to believe and operate with that same sense that there, there really is peace to be found apart from my perfect circumstances. But that's what so many of us get focused on, isn't it? Lord, if you would take away this debt, if you would cure this illness, if you would make my family whole again, if you would just help my car to start up the very first time I turn the key. I mean, we're looking for all kinds of circumstantial changes before we would say, now we're at peace. But God is not always interested in changing the immediate circumstances before he brings us into peace. That's because peace is ultimately a condition of the soul as it is in right relationship with God. And the only way for your soul and mine to be in right relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. Simeon doesn't even say, well, let's see how this thing works out and you know, let's give this child you know, 20, 30 years and see how his ministry goes and see how his, uh, his life ends. He's got the promises of God and he's got the Christ child in his hand and that's enough. What's the source of your peace today? Some of you are looking for circumstantial change and God is actually trying to bring you to a place where you would recognize consolation is not a change in circumstances. Consolation is a person. Now look at verse 30. Because Jesus is God's present salvation for the nations. It's not just Simeon who's blessed here. Simeon says, my eyes have seen your salvation God's salvation Jesus is God's established salvation for the nations the angels reported it earlier in chapter 2 Simeon's going to reinforce it Anna who we'll get to in just a moment will reinforce it all the way through the gospel of Luke you're going to hear again and again that this is the one who brings salvation to the world and God's salvation and rescue comes through the life and the death and the resurrection of this person. Salvation is not simply a, a path of morality that we begin to journey. God's path of salvation is not keeping a list of 10 commandments to where you can say, I'm good, I did the stuff you said, and I didn't do the stuff you warned us about. 
That's not salvation. We looked last week at the reality from, from the New Testament letter to the Romans that the Apostle Paul wrote, by works of the law will no human being be justified. If we're honest, we'd all say, if I look at the law, I've broken every one of those commandments. Well, that's exactly why you need a Savior, and that's exactly why God sent the Savior into the world, to live the life of obedience you could never live, and then trade your disobedience for his obedience. To die the death you and I deserved, and then trade places where he goes to the cross for you, for me. And we don't go to the cross and live. To rise again from the grave, both as a signal that God had accepted his perfect sacrifice and that we are justified, that is declared in God's court of law, declared to be righteous forever for Christ's sake. Consolation and salvation are a person. Now notice verse 32. Because Simeon goes on to prophesy that Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. A light of revelation is not always a happy thing. You ever been doing something in secret, perhaps even as a child, and you, you know, closed the door and you drew the shades and maybe even dimmed the lights, and then, like, your dad walks in on you and throws the light on and you hear the, what are you doing? And you have been revealed. That's terrifying. How much more so when God turns the light on not just environmentally, but within your soul, and you suddenly have to come face to, the fa- face to face with the fact that you are corrupted from within. Nobody likes that kind of revealing. But understand this, when God, through Christ, shines that kind of revealing light into your soul and exposes the sin and corruption that resides there, it's with a view that he would remedy that sin by the powerful work of Jesus Christ, not leave you in your corruption, not leave you in your guilt, not leave you in your shame, but deliver you. And the light he brings is not only the light of conviction, but it's the light of rescue and salvation. You know, friend, if you continue to try to hide or ignore or even justify, I, I'm, not, I'm not as bad as that guy. I, I'm not as bad as a lot of other people. Surely my, my, I've done some good in my life. Surely God would recognize that good. He, he's, not, he's not laying it into you know, an old-fashioned balance where he puts your good works and your bad works side by side, and if the good works outweigh the bad, then you're good. No, he's like, if you've broken one law, you've broken them all. And you think about this moment in our culture's history, how, how dark and thick is the moral confusion, let alone corruption, We're so confused at this moment regarding our origin. The beautiful news of the Bible is that you were created by a living God in his image. Given life and breath that really does set you into a totally different category from all other life on planet Earth. You are infinitely more valuable than your dog and the neighbor's cat and your friend's horse. You are created in his image, not any of that other stuff. Culture is desperately confused regarding sexuality and gender. God's word says, I created you male and female, and I've ordained marriage to be a beautiful picture, ultimately, of the relationship that Jesus Christ has with the church. And Jesus, as the perfect groom, is faithful and loyal to his one wife, He doesn't cheat on her. He doesn't step out on her. He doesn't go add to a harem. Marriage is a good thing in and of itself, but you begin to realize when you study the scripture, it's a glorious thing of eternal value and significance. Culture is desperately confused regarding all kinds of things, but the light that Jesus brings and we'll actually see this all through Luke's gospel, causes people not only to see the world around them as it is, but more specifically to see themselves as who they really are. 
That's a gift. So it may be painful initially when God begins to shine his light into your soul and you're like, I, I'm in trouble. I'm actually not the good guy I pretend to be. I'm actually not as moral and upright and devout or righteous even as what we have read of Simeon earlier. I'm not what I ought to be. Is there hope for me? And God continues to shine the light and says, yes, there is hope in Jesus. You see, Jesus is a light of revelation for the nations. I think of what Jesus said. It's recorded in John's gospel, chapter 8, verse 12, where he spoke to those who were gathered around him. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. That is, you're not going to continue to live out in confusion, chaos, You will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. Do you know Jesus in that way? Simeon goes on to say he is for he's been given for glory to your people Israel. We don't have time to fully unpack that, but that ties into some Old Testament prophecies where Israel, and and by the way, if you know the, 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 the history of of the nation of Israel, it, it really is essentially a downward spiral through the centuries, going, moving further and further away uh, from faithful service to God and rushing headlong through all kinds of idolatry and apostasy, even to where now the present Jewish uh, nation is by and large a secular nation. But one day, they're going to turn. And they'll look at Jesus, who so many of them despise at this moment, and say, he is our glory. We'll have to leave that thought there. Press on to verse 34 with me. Notice that Simeon says, Jesus is God's appointed one. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Now the fall that's spoken of here is a spiritual calamity. And similarly, correspondingly, the rising that's spoken of here is a kind of spiritual resurrection. Now let's meditate on this for a moment because it actually brings us to a really important question. The falling and rising actually represent two different responses to Jesus. Let's talk about the fall. First of all, not the fall of Genesis 3. This is a falling of a spiritual nature in response to Jesus. It's what the Apostle Paul wrote of in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23, where he was talking about the gospel. The gospel of a crucified Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews. That is, the Jewish nation would stumble over this because it's an offensive thought, first of all, that any person would be crucified. The Old Testament even said, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. Well, Jesus was hung on a a rugged cross that we sometimes refer to as a tree. Clearly, he's under the curse of God. And yet, apostles like Paul and disciples like those in the New Testament are calling Jews to put their faith and trust in what must be a criminal guilty of horrible offenses. You can kind of understand how they might stumble over that message. But in the same passage in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul also talks about the offense of the gospel that from a Gentile perspective, it's just foolishness. And the Gentile culture, Greek culture in particular, was all about wisdom. And there were all kinds of philosophies of life and all kinds of teachers and gurus who were out there. And so an apostle, again, like Paul or the first century believers come in and say, let us tell you about Jesus, the man who lived the life you can never live, died the death you deserve to die, and call you to repent and believe. You would say, that's insanity. It just doesn't make sense. It's folly. Over the last several weeks, I've actually seen multiple clips and reels of comedian Ricky Gervais, who describes himself as an agnostic atheist because he doesn't believe that anyone can really know. And it's interesting, and I would actually, if you want to go you know, research this on your own, uh, the, the, com, um, 
The comedy routines that he's developed that run along these lines are not as helpful in understanding uh, some of what I would, I would say might be some of his deeper thoughts because he really goes hard after uh, Christianity, the Bible, and things like that. I mean, it'll, it'll grieve your heart to hear that. But I did run across an interview uh, with Gervais and Stephen Colbert on, on Colbert's show. And, and it was quite fascinating to listen to the two of them because Colbert, who, I mean, he, he says he believes in God. I don't doubt him on that, but I mean, I don't, he's certainly not a spirit-filled believer. I'll just leave that there. Um, but he presses Gervais on why he's an agnostic atheist. And, and Gervais is actually very respectful to Colbert, although he makes um, some particular comments uh, you know, pushing back hard on the whole notion that anybody would actually believe in a God when from his perspective there's no proof. And I think all oh, your, your eyes are veiled to it. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth you know, shows his handiwork. We could just start their general revelation, but that's not this point. Uh, that's not the point for this message. But at, at one point in that conversation that the two of them are having, Colbert actually asks him, but don't you feel a deep sense of gratitude for the life you've been given. And he says, yes. I mean, this is remarkable. He goes, oh, I absolutely feel a deep sense of gratitude when I consider that it's one in the billions of odds that I would actually be alive at this moment in history on planet Earth doing what I'm doing. Yes, I feel a deep sense of gratitude, but what he can't bring himself to do is acknowledge that there might be a God in heaven who gave him this life and that it's that God who deserves his gratitude. And I listen to that, and part of me, inside my soul, I'm just almost screaming back into my little scream there like, oh, open your eyes and see God. But then I also think, like 2 Corinthians 4 tells us, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving lest they should see the light of the glory of God as it's revealed in the face of Jesus. He's blind and doesn't know it. And I actually, a couple days ago when I was looking at this, I thought I should pray for his salvation. So I did. And maybe God will lead me to again. It'd be great to see him change his comedy routine at some points and say, can I tell you about the God that I never believe existed, but who's revealed himself to me, that would be glorious. But there's an example of a man who is falling. At this moment, he's falling, stumbling over Jesus. Jesus is God's sign. When Simeon uses that term, if you look again at verse 34, He's actually saying Jesus is the finger mark, like the, the fingerprint, almost, if you will, of God. But then Simeon goes on to say he's a sign that is opposed so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Ricky Gervais is a present example of someone who opposes Jesus and the gospel but even in Christ's own day, there were many that scorned him, weren't there? The scribes and Pharisees hated him, plotted to kill him. Judas betrayed him. Pilate washed his hands of him. Herod, seemingly with great indifference, sent him off to be crucified, and that's exactly what both Jew and Gentile did. Many through the centuries have fallen over Jesus. But in Simeon's prophecy, he also said that Jesus has been appointed by God for the rising of many. There's a spiritual resurrection that is in view. It's the rising that takes place when by faith we see and believe that Jesus is God's one-of-a-kind son it's the rising that takes place when by faith we not only recognize our sin but recognize in him the great power and willingness to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness to remove the guilt and take away the shame to adopt us as his own children and make us joint heirs with jesus forever there's a rising friends when we begin to see jesus as he is when we believe the word of the gospel 
Bible as it is revealed to us and it lifts us out of all that personal confusion and religious self-righteousness. We rise often out of generational curses that have enslaved not only us, but our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents before us. There is a rising in faith because Jesus Christ is the saving consolation for all who believe. Do you know him in that way? Mary was pondering all that was taking place and being said at that moment. I want you to ponder for just a moment, is Jesus my falling or is Jesus my rising? What a moment. Well, God brings another witness into the picture. Her name is Anna. And just as remarkably, what Anna did, though the specific words are not recorded for us, but it seems like, in in a sense, she just begins to sing the same song, just the second verse. Now, notice a couple of really beautiful things about her. Anna, she's designated as a prophetess, which in its, simple, its simplest sense refers to a woman who is known as a friend of God. That as she walks in an intimate relationship with him, lives in communion with God, and, and is a woman to whom God reveals himself by his spirit. Sounds like Simeon, doesn't it? Yeah. There, there are some prophetesses here. Some women here who walk with God. You commune with him daily. Though your life has been far from perfect, like Anna's was far from perfect. Lost her husband seven years into marriage, and for whatever reasons, perhaps by choice, perhaps just by the providence of God, remained a widow for decades beyond that. Furthermore, as, as Luke describes it for us, you sense almost a kind of dignity that comes not just with the hardship of her widowhood, but he notes she's advanced in years. Like this woman enters the scene and you just almost feel a hush coming over your soul. And then notice that Luke comments on her devotion of worship and service because this is a woman who is worshiping with fasting and prayer daily in the temple. And if you go back and read the Old Testament, there's no full-time position opened for widow ladies like Anna. You know, that somebody's going to like pay her salary or give her give her a place there. One author I read this past week even noted that perhaps for those, you know, the full-time priesthood that would have been there every day taking care of all the duties and responsibilities, Anna may have been looked upon as a bit of an inconvenience. Like, she's here again? Does that woman not have a life? Oh, she has a life. She has a remarkable life. Now, again, the specific words are not given, but she begins to prophesy. Uh, The text tells us she began to give thanks to God, and the terminology there reads such that we could also understand that to mean she likewise gave thanks to God. That is, as Simeon was praising God and prophesying, so she begins to give thanks to God, and then notice this, and to speak of him, speak of Christ to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And you say, the redemption of Jerusalem, there's a little echo of the consolation of Israel. Yeah, exactly. I think they're parallel thoughts. I think they fill out this revelation of who Jesus is. He's not under the consolation of those who wait for him. He is the redemption. You don't redeem yourself from sin. You don't redeem yourself from spiritual darkness and the slavery and the shame and the guilt and the fear. He redeems you. She knows it and has the joy and glory of being there in that moment. So the memory from Christ's infancy is that he is the consolation and redemption of those who are waiting for him. Is he yours? Many of us are seeking to console our, our lives and hearts and souls in other ways. And Jesus stands before you again and says, I'm the consolation. Some of you are trying to redeem yourself from your sinful past or even your sinful present. 
I know I'm a terrible person. That was so bad. I should have never said those words or done those deeds. I should have never cheated on my taxes or swindled my business partner. You're right. You shouldn't have. God calls it sin. But is your pathway of redemption that you just merely make amends, that you pay that back, that you actually start a business and, start and, and pay your taxes honestly? That's not ultimate redemption. But in Jesus, there is. Well, in conclusion, let's go to verse 40 because there's also the treasured memory of Jesus' boyhood. This won't take long, partly because there's not as much said here in this this section, but isn't it interesting that probably out of all the things that could have been reported about Jesus' boyhood, we fast forward from day 39 or 40 uh, of his existence as an infant, and now suddenly he's 12 years old, and the family, once again, as was their habit and practice, are on their way to Jerusalem for Passover. No comment about how the week of Passover celebration went. Just verse 43 says, when the feast was ended as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. We lost our oldest son one time. It was a big family reunion down at Hilton Head Island. That was one of our favorite places to vacation. This happened to be in the fall, and my sisters and their children were there. My dad was there. Even a great aunt came. I mean, it was a big crew, and we had rented a couple of different condominiums there, and we're packed in there, and our oldest son, Luke, who I should remember the age. This is why I need my wife, or at least one of those creative memory scrapbook things, um, to tell you. I think, I think he may have been... Six, and I'm saying that in part because there's another uh, remarkable event I could tell you about on that from that trip. I have to save that for later. Um, he was upstairs in one of the condos playing PlayStation. All the cousins were there, and of course, parents are shouting up, "We're leaving, going to supper, you know, get ready." So we all pile into various cars. We get over to the restaurant, which is about 15 minutes from where we were, being seated and looking around, taking a head count. Luke's not there turn to the cousins did Luke ride with you nope where's Luke I don't know who's seen Luke and then one of the you know one of the nephews pipes up last time I saw him he was upstairs playing PlayStation of course but it was a moment of terror like I can't get back to that boy soon enough and I hopped in the car drove parked I go in the condo he's sitting on the couch like, I can still picture it. I go up these little stairs, and there he is. He's just sitting there, like hands in his lap, a little misty-eyed. And man, I'm telling you, I've never hugged a boy like I hugged him. Luke, so sorry. Didn't mean, and then he starts apologizing to me. Then he tells a story about how he's upstairs and suddenly realizes the house is quiet. <laughs> so he goes downstairs, nobody's there. He actually went across the street or the parking lot, knocks on a stranger's door. Have you seen my mom? Have you seen my dad? And like, no, and praise God for a, you know, a wise and holy stranger who's like, you know what? You go back to your condo and I'm sure your mom and dad will be back in just a minute. I mean, praise the Lord, it wasn't some lunatic, right? Every parent's worst nightmare. From start to finish, that was probably not more than 30 minutes. So imagine how this couple feels. And to add to it, this is Jesus. Like, how are you going to explain this, you know, to your, to your father in heaven? I know that's a little goofy. But if you put yourself in their shoes, when, when Mary finally comes to him and, and she, uh, she says, uh, verse 48, why have you treated us so? Uh, they had been searching, uh, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Yeah, that's understatement. But some of you parents know exactly what they felt. But here are the things that, that are highlighted, all right? First of all, notice that verse 40 just gives a general summary. He was filled with wisdom. These are the things that we need to remember about his boyhood. Um, he was also marked by God's favor, which is another word for grace. And then thirdly, 
Um, he's on mission already as a 12-year-old. 12-year-olds are great to be around. They bring a lot of energy, bring a lot of creativity. They bring a lot of goofy into your world as well. And I'm sure there was a time and a place for that because Jesus grew up and matured as any other ordinary Jewish boy. But at this moment, there's something else that is beginning to unfold and be seen by all and that this boy is on mission. And the first words of Jesus recorded in Luke's gospel, look at these, verse 49. Here's his answer. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And some of your English translations have a little footnote or maybe even yours translates it this way. That could also be understood. Didn't you realize that I should be involved with my father's affairs? This is no ordinary 12-year-old. Every year the debate erupts when we start playing Christmas carols and a Christmas song that I love, Mary, Did You Know? Any of you seen those, those kind of silly theological discussions about what Mary did or did not know? I mean, I've seen full-blown arguments break out over that song. Mary, did you know? Yes, she knew. Read the Magnificat. Yeah. Read verse 50 here. They had limited understanding. They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. In time, they would. In time, they will fully understand what it means for this boy who will become a man to, to be about his father's business, to occupy the father's house. There will certainly be much more light for Mary in the coming 20 years as Jesus lives and dies and rises again. But for this moment, she doesn't fully understand. And that's part of what makes verse 51 all the more remarkable. Look at that verse with me for a moment. And he, despite their lack of understanding, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. That's a Philippians 2 kind of humility. little sidebar for some of our young people here. Some of you don't think that that your mom and dad are the brightest people in the world and and you kind of make fun of them behind their back, maybe even to their face because you feel like you know more, you understand more than they do. And you know what? There will probably be a point in your life where you actually do. Now, this is not the moment. But you see something in Jesus of a beautiful humility that many younger people people who are still living under the authority and protection of a mom and dad ought to understand and demonstrate, and that is you don't have to be, or your parents don't have to be smarter than you for you to submit to them. You don't even have to have full understanding of what they're asking of you or requiring of you or assigning to you. It's your place, because this is how God has designed households to operate. Your parents are in charge. And Jesus knew that and arranged himself under. Even though they didn't understand the big mission. You see how he's honoring both God the Father and earthly Father. It's beautiful. And these are the treasured memories of his boyhood. Well, it builds our excitement and anticipation. Like part of me just wants to keep going into chapter three right now. We'll leave Jesus in his 12-year-old moment. And when we pick it up, and this will be in January, Matt's gonna preach the next two Sundays, but he's gonna do like a little, uh, a little sidebar topical study on peace. Um, but when we resume Luke's gospel we're going to continue to see why Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. She, she knows many things at this moment, but she's also growing in her knowledge and understanding of who this child is. And I go back even just in conclusion from her perspective to, to take up those words that she sang out in great praise to God. Um, if you go back to chapter one, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Simeon held his Savior in his arms 
Anna standing right there. Maybe she took a turn. I mean, that's what people do, right? You pass babies around. Certainly this woman loved and nurtured and cared for this child in all the way, marveling and treasuring the fact, this is not only my son, this is my Savior. Is he yours? Is he the consolation of your soul, or are you trying desperately to find it somewhere else? Is he your redemption, or are you trying to, trying to carve out your own pathway of redemption? If we review real quickly who Jesus is from these early chapters, we've heard the angels say he's the savior of the world who brings joy. The shepherds reminded us that he's the child uh, who creates wonder, can't keep our mouths closed because of the things we've seen and heard. We heard Simeon say uh, just a few minutes ago, this is the consolation who brings my total peace. And Anna reinforced this while we don't know her words. She was certainly prophesying that this is the one who is redemption, who brings gratitude to our hearts. And for Mary, she is the treasured son. And I should add a few more words to the end, the treasured son who is our salvation. Because of all that, it is indeed a Merry Christmas. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. We cannot comprehend the incarnation. How could you, the infinite, eternal, self-existent God stoop to such a depth that you would enter the womb? Yes, by miraculous conception, but yes, nine months of growth and development in the secret place, then born in such humble, even deplorable circumstances. You should have been born in a palace, but you were born in a stable. You could have been born into any race on planet earth, but you chose to be born into a Jewish family and grow up as an ordinary Jewish boy and yet so aware, even from those early days of your mission, that you would devote yourself fully to the Father's will. All praise and glory to you. We admit at this moment that we are in desperate need of a consolation and comfort that we cannot provide for ourselves. Marriages that are broken, business endeavors, endeavors that are failing, health that is declining, joy that seems to have escaped us even at this time of year. Oh, dear Savior, come with all your consoling, redeeming, rescuing power. While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, we continue in prayer for just a moment. But friend, if you are here, you have sensed the Spirit of God speaking to you this morning, perhaps calling you to turn from your effort to save yourself We would love to pray for you. We'd love to talk with you more about how you can know, know that your sins are forgiven. That the gift of eternal life is yours. If you're seated here this morning saying, oh, I'd love to know more. I I feel that need in my soul. I I know it. And, And I do believe the Spirit of God has actually been speaking within while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, would you just acknowledge that by a raised hand that I could see that? I'm not gonna call you out or embarrass you, but I'm just gonna make a little mental note uh, that maybe we could talk for a moment after the service, but you say, yes, Danny, that's me, and I would love to talk, love to know more. Is that you? Even for those of you who say, I... I really do believe that Jesus lived the life I could never live, died the death I deserve to die. My faith is in him, but I, 
I've been moving away from that. And I actually am seeking consolation and comfort in other things at this moment. God has challenged me on that and I'm calling upon him. Oh, dear friend, if we can be of encouragement and help and maybe there are specifics that you would like to talk through, would, would you let us know? It's not just Matt and me, Daniel, Dean, and Josh. We're, we, we serve as five pastor elders here, but there are many others here who would love to open God's word and just listen and pray and encourage you. But will you just make a point? Share that with somebody today. Share what God has been impressing on your heart. Will you? Now, Father, seal your word and work to our hearts and anything else that has been spoken or shared or even thought uh, within our own souls today that is not accurate regarding Christ, who you are, what you are doing. Just, just let it fall away, lifeless and useless as it should be. And let your life-giving word remain. Let your Holy Spirit remain upon us until we, like Simeon and Anna, see face to face our Savior. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.